Welcome to Laboratory Considerations from Q Squared Solutions. I'm your host, Chris Connor. Q Squared Solutions is a leading global clinical trial laboratory services organization providing comprehensive testing, project management, supply chain, biorepository, biospecimen, and consent tracking solutions. Leveraging our next generation technologies, we deliver agile and precise services designed to meet the diverse needs of our clients. We provide scientific expertise and innovative solutions for ADMI, bioanalytical, genomics, vaccines, and central laboratory services, including flow cytometry, anatomic pathology, immunoassay, molecular, and companion diagnostics with meticulous regional and global clinical trial implementation support and high-quality data delivery. At Q-Squared Solutions, our work is rooted in research, grounded in collaboration, and guided by our passion to turn the hope of patients and caregivers around the world into the help they need. To learn more, visit q2labsolutions.com. That's Q, the number two, labsolutions.com. This is the second part of a three-part series on sample management and tracking. Joining me again is Barbara Nagaraj, Senior IT Architect at BioFortis, a Q-squared solutions company. Barbara, welcome back. Thank you so much. In our previous episode, you and I talked about the challenges of tracking clinical trial samples over the course of a study and their whole life cycle. Today, we're going to focus on consent management and tracking that along with those samples. So given that samples are only collected with the consent of a patient, what are some of the challenges that organizations face around sample use and tracking that consent? It's such a, a solid question that I think a lot of people ask. If we look at what the the FDA considers informed consent to be, there, there are actually a number of parameters. And this is just speaking globally first, and then I'll focus on samples. So in general, the FDA says a subject must have adequate information to even allow them to make an informed decision about participating in a clinical trial. So that's first and foremost. There must be some sort of process. And documentation in place to demonstrate that the subject understands all of the information about the study, whether participating, any side effects, things like that. There needs to also be an appropriate amount of time for the subject to ask questions so that they completely understand what they're signing up for, as well as even a way to document that the subject maybe agreed to only certain parts of things. That's where you can start to tie in information about samples. And then probably something that we often forget is that there needs to be a process in place for consent that includes providing information about the trial as it changes, so as it progresses. So the subject really must know that there are amendments in place that could impact them. So changes to visits or samples or any other more clinical things, they need to know all this stuff. So all of these things, the FDA considers all part of informed consent. So this is really just to get the subject to volunteer for the trial and then nested within this whole process and the documentation is the information about biological samples. So 
what's collected from me, when, you know, how often do you have to see me, what will the samples be used for? Will the subject, me, be provided the results of any testing? How long can those samples, my samples, be stored? And maybe even can they be used for other purposes outside of, you know, this study, the original reason, the original reason that they were collected. So overall, this is quite a bit, right? This is a lot for the, the subject to understand. So what about the sample piece specifically? I'm going to hone in on that. So from, I would say, a historical perspective, consent to collect and analyze biological samples from patients in clinical trials was actually captured on paper. Technically, everything was captured on paper historically, but patient consents are designed as a set of documents that are intended for human interaction, right? So the subject sits down with a clinical investigator or the nurse, and together they go through all of the documents with the intention of the patient fully understanding how the samples will be used, because this is really important. It's actually critical for the overall consent process that the subject knows where their personal biological material is going to be. So the challenge is that the documentation around sample consent has not always been captured in an easily uh, computable format. So that means the information on paper is not always in a database and makes it really difficult to be analyzed. So these days, it's definitely getting much better. Everything is becoming a little bit more digitized. There are now what are called e-consent or electronic consent tools that investigators have started to use that will digitize the consent documentation and in essence can capture the information in an analytic format. So it can be analyzed with programming and things like that. So ideally, the best practice then is to extract some of the key information pieces from the consent documents in a computable format. And then that information can allow the investigators to more easily determine which samples can be used for what purpose, because it's all captured in a database and everything can be joined together for reporting. So I bet your next question would then be, well, what's the impact of not capturing this information somewhere? And I would say if if the investigator can't find the pieces of paper, that's not good, right? If they can't get a hold of the data because it's not captured in a digital way, and they're not able to review all of this information prior to running the test or storing samples and not knowing if proper consent was even collected, this can be a huge non-compliance issue and can actually lead to quite a bit of downstream risk for the trial and even for the organization, unfortunately. Yeah, a few things stood out to me there. So first of all, someone gives consent to participate in a trial that doesn't mean you can do anything you want with a sample. I think people understand that. But what's complicating it is that they can pick and choose which things. And now <laughs> many samples now have essentially branched out into many possible variables of the original experiment. That's right. That have to be tracked That's right. <laughs> in the old days on paper. So that kind of sums the whole thing up, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, paper's been around for a long time. <laughs> The other thing I want to ask you about, if, if we can talk about it a little bit, is amendments. How I'm just curious how those amendments are communicated back. And is there a 
possibility of consent being required on an amendment saying we would like to do this differently. Is that okay? Is that a thing that happens? That is definitely a thing that happens. I would say almost every single protocol is amended for one reason or another. It could be a change to a, a testing procedure. It could be an addition of a visit um, you know, in which a patient comes in and has some sort of assessment. It could be changes to the actual sample collection. Um, it could be the addition of a new lab or a new site. So really lots of things can determine a protocol amendment. The subject doesn't always have to sign unless it's something that's going to impact them, like uh, a new visit or a new collection. So they would then have to essentially agree to the amendment or to participate in the amendment since they would be showing up for those visits and having those samples collected. So the exact consent given for each sample can, as we just talked about, get complicated and hard to track. Describe some of the attributes that are commonly applied to those samples that are collected during a trial and touch on how those are applied to the samples themselves. Yep, good question. So there are definitely some pretty common consent attributes that we see globally with sponsors that we've worked with over the years. Overall, in general, there's what can be considered main study consent. So all the samples collected specifically for the study and the study's analysis plan. So this most often includes some of the basic safety samples like blood panels and pregnancy tests. Then there's what we have seen called genetic testing, which includes samples that are probably targeted for pretty specific genetic analysis, uh, which in itself is a bit of a moving target and thinking about the rate at which genes and mutations are being identified. Consent for one particular genetic test might actually extend or include other genes. So it would need to be really clear in the consent process and any you know, genetic testing documentation consent, whether a subject can opt in or out of any of the selected or extended tests. So we've actually also seen additional genetic testing consents, which in essence really accounts, in essence really accounts for these extended testing situations when panels are overly inclusive for genes outside of the specific scope of a trial. Other attributes that we see quite a bit include what's called storage duration, so how long a sample can be stored in the repository after a study is done and completed, and future use. Can a sample that's being stored beyond the completion of one study be used for a completely different study? Uh, I would say most often the use of the sample data and the actual sample itself can be unknown at the time of collection for maybe samples that are not specifically purposed for that study's analysis. So I, in my mind, I'm thinking that they really don't have a destination for them yet, but these samples that are collected and stored for future use are really valuable to the research community. So the data and samples are stored in repository for a certain amount of time with the capability to be traced back to the original donor if that would be necessary. I would also say some samples can also be stored in an anonymized way, data without any identifiers then that cannot be linked back to the individual donor. So this typically then is also mentioned in the consent documentation. So I would say those are some of the big ones, the main study, genetic testing, and additional genetic testing, followed by storage duration and future use. 
So I have another question just about the logistics. When there's a limit on the storage duration, or is there some mechanism that those things are pulled and disposed of? There is. Well, there can be, yes. As long as somebody's keeping track. I've heard sometimes whisperings of, we have 17,000 you know, samples in the freezer and we don't know what they're for or where they're from. So I think, yeah, they, the researchers can definitely have a process in place to track those specific data points, right? That Those are data points, essentially. How long has a, the sample been in storage since it was collected? When was the end of the study? And how long is the consented storage duration? Often it can be 15 or 20 years after the study closes. So yeah, we definitely recommend that there's a process in place. And really that can be data-driven. You can have software that keeps track of that type of information. Aside from the compliance issues, and 15 to 20 years is a long time and new ideas come up and so on, but storing things at, I presume, a pretty low temperature is not cheap. And having <laughs> thousands and thousands of samples that are in cold storage that you don't need to have or can't use anymore is an expense aside from compliance. Job. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why it's it's really important to monitor really closely when samples are due to expire. It's really good to have some sort of notification in place that, yep, you can now release these 200,000 serum samples into the wild or into the, uh, the trash bin or uh, destruction so that that can be taken care of. But you're right. There's definitely an expense to maintaining those freezers and all those samples in there. Okay, so what about, now we're going to add yet another level of complication, consent requirements for different sites in different countries. How is that handled? Yes, yeah, so if you think about the governing bodies of, of clinical trials, so who is watching over the process for consent for these subjects for a given study, and are things being collected and stored According to some ethical standards, there's something called an Institutional Review Board or an IRB. The IRB will preview all consent documentation and then give their stamp of approval when they feel that ethical standards are being met. This is great because you have a lot of experts that can serve on that Institutional Review Board. Now, given that there are different Institutional Review Boards for different institutions, there isn't one global governing body, but these IRBs given that they're different for different institutions, may have differing opinions or approaches to their interpretation of ethical standards for samples and consent. So a standard does exist, but each IRB has the right or, or the, uh, the privilege, I would almost say, to approve or disapprove of the consent languaging used in a trial. So now imagine that you're working with different institutions that are performing research, say, in both developed and developing countries. So ethical standards may actually not be the same among these two particular regions, right? Developing countries and developed, already developed countries. And therefore, the, the consent languaging needs to be captured really clearly for each country and maybe even each site within those countries if you get down to the institutional level. So here's where we need to have a system in place that can define for each country and each site 
These are the specific attributes for samples collected in country one, site one, for example. And then having this level of detail on really on paper only is horrendously time consuming to comb through and associate with each sample appropriately. It's been done really like this for many years. But imagine if all of us moved to an electronic or e-consent model where this is all digitized and we know which country and site a subject is enrolled at. We know which consent the subject signed and when, all in one place. And we know the specific attributes for that country and site for each type of sample. Take that data, yes, I'm actually calling it data now, and pair it with each individual sample that was collected. And you have a concrete list of what samples can be used, when and how. That sounds pretty magical, right? But this is the direction that we want to go. It's definitely a tall order. Yes, but I think we're really headed in the right direction because sponsors know that this data and the ability to understand and have access to their data is really crucial in getting things right from an ethical perspective. You certainly want to make sure that you're in compliance. And the thing we're trying to get to here is, I don't want to say not having to think about, but maybe not having to worry about pulling samples and using them for the wrong thing, right? Yes. That's exactly right. And we all need to follow the guidance and guidelines that are in place. And the consent documents, from a sponsor perspective, they can make this happen a little bit easier by having a more global template to start with, something that is uh, in a computable format or what we could like to say as digitized, right? Have the same basic elements for each of their consents at a global perspective. And then any deviations from that global consent template that needs to be specific for countries or sites are minor changes that can also then be digitized. That's really the ideal. Nice. Well, Barbara Nagaraj, this was hugely informative. And on our next conversation, we're gonna talk about managing sample tracking data from vendors during clinical trials. So I hope people will stick around for that. And thanks again for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks, Chris. You can learn more about sample tracking and consent management at q2labsolutions.com slash lab matrix. That's Q, the number two, labsolutions.com slash lab matrix. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of Laboratory Considerations. Bye-bye.